Now let's turn together to the sixth chapter of the book of Romans. By the way, all the pieces that you chose were just really well suited to uh, singing without accompaniment, weren't they? As what wondrous love is that pentatonic? Is it is? Romans chapter 6, the first 14 verses. Let's pray before reading. Gracious God and Father in heaven, we ask in the name of the Lord Jesus that you will hear our prayer for the illumination of your Holy Spirit upon us as we now open the word. And we pray that you will give to us um, a depth of understanding of this text that we will take along with us. Uh, The body and the mind are tired, Lord, on Sabbath evening. We pray that your Holy Spirit will help us not to walk away and Monday stretch our heads to remember what this text was about or whether we even heard the text expounded. Because, Father, this is your word and it is an extraordinarily important message that you have for us as believers in Christ who are in the battle and struggle with temptation and sin. And so, Father, apply it to our hearts, for we ask it in the name of Christ our Lord. Amen. Romans chapter 6, beginning with verse 1. This is the Word of God. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried therefore with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ being raised from the dead will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death that he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal bodies to make you obey their passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness." For sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under law, but under grace. Now, people of God, I know that you understand the distinction between justification and sanctification, but let me repeat it, because it's absolutely crucial. When there is confusion between the truth of justification and the truth of sanctification, all theology is messed up. As a matter of fact... The Church of Rome confuses justification and sanctification, and a lot of its works righteousness may be attributed to this confusion in its soteriology, its doctrine of salvation. Justification, then, is an act, an act of God's free grace, 
whereby He accepts us as righteous in His sight only for the righteousness of Christ that is imputed to us and received by faith alone. Justification, then, is a one-time thing. It is an act. When you believe in Christ, you are completely accepted, and there is nothing more to it. It is not a process. It is an act. You are accepted once for all. Sanctification, however, is a process. And in that process, the Holy Spirit is renewing our wills and is enabling us more and more to embrace Jesus Christ freely offered in the gospel and to live unto God. And so the actual sinful heart is now being, because now regenerate, is now being sanctified and we are growing in grace. It is crucial that you make that distinction. Justification is legal. It is forensic. It happens in the courtroom. Sanctification is what actually happens in the heart so that we are morally transformed. Now, do you understand the distinction? Is that clear to you? If not, I'm willing to go through it again. Yes? That then is the distinction we must bear in mind as the Apostle Paul has for these first five chapters been expounding the doctrine of justification by grace through faith in Christ. Now he turns the page in chapter 6 and he begins to address sanctification, our growth in grace, the change of our hearts, moral transformation through the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. The gospel is concerned not only with our acceptance and the removal of our guilt in God's court of law. The gospel is also concerned with our hearts being transformed and changed. So what the Apostle Paul is going to say in this chapter, I'm going to go ahead and sum up for you, even though we're going to look at the details of his thought, which is, as always with Paul, very complex and wonderful. Here, in this chapter... Paul anchors change in the death and resurrection of Jesus. These are historical facts, once for all facts, but also events in which, because of our union with Christ, we participate. Therefore, sin is out of place in the Christian's life. That, in a nutshell, is where Paul is going. Now, he uses two arguments in this chapter, and we're only going to look at the first tonight, which is in verses 1 through 14, when he argues from our union with Jesus Christ. Now, I'm not going to repeat in detail what that means. As we've worked through Ephesians, you might recall, some of you that I see were not there, so you may want to go and pick it up. But we actually spent a sermon in which we unpacked what union with Christ means. We'll be referencing some of that as we move along. But he's arguing from our union with Christ. But before we actually move into the argument of Paul in this passage, I want you to note that Paul answers an objection, and it's found in verse 1. The objection is this, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? It is the objection of antinomianism. And it has been in the church since the time of Paul, and it is still in the church today. It's the viewpoint that since we are saved by grace, then let's just go sin. And God will just get more glory for it because He'll keep forgiving us of our sins. Well, that, of course, is a false theology and false teaching. And Paul's answer to it is found also here where he says in verse 2, by no means. 
meganoita. Interestingly, uh, one of the few times that the Apostle Paul uses the Greek optative, meganoita, translated here by no means. The old King James translated it, God forbid. In other words, may it never be. The Apostle Paul answers antinomians because you have a true premise but a wrong conclusion. He doesn't backpedal on justification, but he responds to this with another question when he says in verse 2, how can we who die to sin still live in it? You don't understand your union with Christ, he says. How can we continue to live in sin when we have a new identity in Jesus Christ? And so it is totally incongruous for the Christian to live in sin for which Christ gave his life on the cross. So now let's move into the argument of Paul. And the first thing that we want to see, the first portion of this argument, is that we have, as Christians, a new identity. That's first. We have a new identity. And it's found in verse 3. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ were baptized into his death? He goes on to say, We were buried therefore with him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. The apostle argues this way. Baptism symbolizes our union with Christ. We are identified with Christ in his death. We are identified with Christ in his resurrection. The key then is this, because we died with him, because we rose in Christ, because we are in union with him, we Christians have a new identity. We're not what we once were, but we have a new identity in Christ. And that new identity defines my relation to sin, as he says in verse 5, for if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. What then did Christ's death mean to him? Well, let's anticipate what Paul says by looking at verse 10. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God. What did it mean for Christ to die? He died to sin that was placed upon him in our place. He died to it, suffering the penalty, and he died to it once for all. We, then, who believe in Jesus, have, in Christ, died to sin. The penalty is removed. A new life has begun for us. Think of it this way. When a young woman becomes the wife of a man, that woman has a new identity. She has a ring on her finger, she has a new name, and she begins to live out of that new identity. Well, we are married to Christ, so to speak. Paul actually says that in chapter 7. And so because we are married to Christ, because we have died in Him, because we rose, because we are in union with Him, we actually have a new identity And so we begin to live out of that new identity. Now, when I was a boy and I would hear this passage expounded, I would hear it expounded this way. Yeah, uh, sin was nailed on the cross and we died with him, but it's a slow death. That's not what Paul says at all. As a matter of fact, that is completely the opposite of what Paul says. Paul says we died. 
that it was something absolutely definitive. He says that over and over in this chapter, it could not be more clear. The point there is not sinless perfection. The point is union with Christ. The point is not somehow sinless perfection, but that you and I have a new identity in Christ. And we should rejoice in that. Now that's essential to our overcoming temptation and sin. So let's follow on with Paul's argument by noticing that in verse 6, and this is the second thing we want to see, Paul actually gives three succinct arguments for Christian living on the basis of this identity in Christ. Three arguments for Christian living. So he says in verse 6, We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. Now do you see his argument? He says first the old self is crucified with Christ. There is a definitive breach with sin's mastery. Your old self, your old life has been crucified with Christ. Next, so that the body of sin might be done away. The old self, controlled by sin's mastery, done away. Sin is now deprived of its power to dominate. And then he says, all of this is so that we might no longer be enslaved to sin. Now let's work through Paul's argument even a little more by seeing this third thing. How does crucifixion with Christ lead to freedom from sin's dominion? Well, that's answered for us in verse 7. For one who has died has been set free from sin. First, you see, there is this decisive breach with sin that we find in verse 7. Literally, it says we are justified from sin. That's literally the Greek text, justified from sin. John Murray says sin has no further claim upon the person who is thus vindicated. That means that you, as a believer, are a new man or woman in Christ. You are not a new man or woman made perfect morally, but you are nonetheless a new man or woman in Christ. And so he goes on to say our death to sin's dominance is followed by a resurrection. In verse 8, now if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with Him. And then he says, in sum, the old life is done. The old life is over. The all old life is finished. The old life has been crucified. Verse 9, we know that Christ being raised from the dead will never die again. You see how definitive it is? Death no longer has dominion over him. So Paul says it has no, lo- no longer dominion over him. Therefore, since you are in union with him, it no longer has dominion over you. Now this is a wonderful thing. John Stott illustrates it, I think, in a very beautiful way. Think of your life as your biography. And our, bio- our, our bio- biography is, is, is going to be written in two volumes. Volume 1 is the story of the old man before conversion. That's who you were before coming to Christ. A rebel, dead in trespasses and sins, completely dominated by sin. That's who you were. That was volume 1 of your life before Christ. Volume 2, however, is the story of the new man, the man who is made new in Christ. 
Well, don't you see, volume one ended with the judicial end of the old self. And the judicial end of the old self is when you were in your faith union united to Christ. Volume one ended then. Volume two of my new biography opens with my spiritual resurrection. My old life having finished, the new life in Christ has begun. Now that's Paul's point, and this is quite excellent. Resurrection living, living out of our new identity, living out of the fullness of the reality that there has been a definitive breach with sin, that I died in him, that I rose in him, that volume two of my life has now begun, that volume one has been shut. Now he's not saying that we never again sin. Paul is not guilty of of saying what the scriptures everywhere deny, sinless perfection will not happen until heaven. But there is a difference between surviving sin and reigning sin. There is a difference between surviving sin and reigning sin. And the cross has delivered us from the reign of sin because Jesus died and rose Sin, in its dominion, in its mastery, has been dethroned. As Anders Nygren put it, in the death of Christ, sin suffered the definitive loss of its right to rule. Sin no longer has a right to rule in your life as a believer because of your new identity in Christ, because of volume two of your life, because of your union with Jesus. You have a new master, and you are dominated by a new Lord. Well then, what are the implications for our living? The implications, that's the fourth thing. We find it all through verses 11 through 14. And the first implication is this. The Apostle Paul says, you are to reckon, you are to consider, you are to understand a truth. And he says in verse 11, so you must consider, the word there is reckon, reckon yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Now what does that mean? I'll tell you what it means. Folks, the battle for sanctification is in the mind. That's what it means. All right? The reason that you're in a battle with temptation is because you are a Christian. Because when you came to faith in Jesus Christ, you were delivered from the dominion of death and Satan and sin. And now you are brought into the dominion of Christ and his kingdom. But you are not yet morally perfect. You are a new man, but not a new man made perfect. I'm not talking justification here. I'm talking the process of sanctification. Are you with me? That being the case, you are to reckon. Get it in your mind. Consider, the ESV translates it. The battle for sanctification is in your thought life. As a man thinketh in his heart, so is he. It's in your mind. 
So reckon in verse 11 means realize that it's true and live out of that reality. Get its reality, this reality of your union with Christ, this reality of your death in Christ, of your resurrection in Christ, this reality that volume two of your life has now been opened and that volume one is shut. Reckon this to be true. Get it deep down within your heart. Get its reality deeply into the fabric of your living. Because we are no longer in sin's realm, volume one is shut. You know, I mentioned this whole idea of marriage and union with Christ. Stott Stott also does this when he says, Can a married woman live as though she were still single? Well, yes, I suppose she can. But let her feel that ring on the fourth finger of her left hand, the symbol of her new life, the symbol of her identification with her husband. And then, of course, she begins to live out of what that symbol means. That's what Paul means when he points to baptism. He's not saying that baptism somehow regenerates the soul. It's the symbol of our new life in Christ, of our union with Him in whom we died, in whom we rose from the dead. That's what Martin Luther meant when he was tempted. How many of you would even think to do this? When he was tempted to sin, Martin Luther cried out, I am a baptized man. And that's foreign to us, but it shouldn't be foreign to us. Because he was reckoning himself to be dead with sin, alive to Christ, the symbol of which is baptism. He was remembering these things to be true. He was getting these things deep down into the, we used to say, the warp and woof of life. I'm a baptized man. Volume 1 is closed. Volume 2 is open. So yield yourselves to God, says Paul, and do not let sin reign over you. Give sin no place. Verses 12 and 13, let not sin therefore. See, therefore, therefore, because of what he's been saying, because of union with Christ, let not sin therefore reign in your mortal bodies to make you obey their passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life as your members and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. Yield yourselves to God. Now I told you that this is a new identity and it is a definitive breach but that sanctification is progressive. You can imagine, can you not, that a slave, let's say the slave has been the the, the heir of his serfdom uh, for generations, Uh, that this particular slave, his father before him, his father before him, his father before him, as far back as he could know, were themselves to be slaves. They were in bondage. And then the slave, say he was, um, say it was in the first century in Rome, was set free. Well, that's a definitive breach, right? It's definitive. It really happened. He was set free. But he's always lived as a slave. So don't you think it's going to take some time for him to think in a new way? to act in a new way? Don't you think from time to time he's still going to grovel like a slave and act like a slave? 
Don't you think that it's going to take a lot of progress before he begins to live as a free man and to really breathe the air of freedom? Well, so it is with us. There is a definitive breach. We're no longer slaves. Sin will not have mastery over you. There is a definitive breach. But sometimes we still act like slaves. Sometimes we act as if this definitive breach has never happened. Sometimes we act as if we are not breathing the air of liberty. And that's why the Apostle Paul in verse 14 brings, I think, needed assurance in the battle when he says, For sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under law but under grace. It would be like like this, this new freeman being told by the one who set him free, why are you acting this way? Don't you understand? I'm never going to make you a slave again. Don't you see? You're free. Stop acting like, like a slave. Reckon yourselves to be dead to sin. Reckon yourselves no longer to be slaves. Reckon yourselves to have a new master, a new Lord. That's what Paul means in this passage. So let me bring it to a conclusion by saying this. You go out on Monday and you face, on Monday, you'll do it tonight. <laughs> uh, you'll face some temptation before you're out the door. Uh, you know, our, our minds are by nature idle factories. And we're constantly as Christians having to deal with this, with this issue of temptation and sin. Uh, but you go out on Monday and you face temptations. Are you going to remember what Paul says here? Uh, do you get it? That knowing that we are saved by grace never encourages us to sin, but the opposite, says Paul. To use Stott's illustration, how can you possibly reopen the first volume? That's what we're attempting to do when we, when we give in to these temptations. Union with Christ is the source of holiness. Union with Christ is never the source of sin. So when tempted, here's what you need to keep and I need to keep, what we need to keep in our heads. I have a new identity. Uh, like like the, the girl newly married... Learning to live like a wife. I have a new identity. My identity is in Christ. And I'm baptized. And that baptism is the symbol, the sign of that union with Christ. And I participate in the Lord's Supper. And the Lord's Supper is the symbol of that union with Christ. The first volume of my life is shut The second volume is now open. I was crucified with Christ. I've been raised with Christ. And that means that there has been a decisive break with sin. And according to verse 11, I must reckon this to be so. I must realize that it's true. Once again, let me tell you, the battle for sanctification, the battle against temptation is in the mind. I heard one preacher say, he's absolutely right. You can go to a service and you can sway back and forth until you're purple in the face and it won't sanctify your heart. What sanctifies your heart, folks, is getting in this book, getting on your knees in prayer, understanding truth and applying truth to your life, 
so that your mind is transformed. A lot of people went to services today and swayed back and forth and they'll live like the devil tomorrow. We need truth to captivate our minds. So reckon these things to be true. Realize it's true. Sin has no claim on me. I will not live as I once lived. To do so contradicts my entire identity. For for the wife to live as if she's not married contradicts her new identity. Rather, I will yield myself to God who redeemed me and my members. Paul means your hands and your feet and your fingers and your toes, all right, your eyes. I will yield my members to God's service. Now, I guess this is my day for quoting Spurgeon, so I'm quoting him again. This is it. We're done. After this, somewhere, Spurgeon said, fight with your sins. Now, you see, you can fight with your sin because you're in union with Christ. That's the whole point. That's why you fight with temptation and sin. Because the Spirit of God now lives within you. Fight with your sins. Hack them in pieces as Samuel did Agag. Let not one of them escape. Take them as Elijah took the prophets of Baal, hew them in pieces before the Lord. Revenge the death of Christ upon your sins, but keep to Christ's cross for the power to do it. Think more of Jesus' cross. Spend more time in contemplation of his blessed person, of his death, and of his rising again. Drink in more of his life and live more upon him. I pray you do this. The words may sound in your ears as very common. And such as you have heard 10,000 times before, but the sense is weighty and all important. If I had but one sentence that I might utter to you believers, I think I should make it this. Live nearer to Christ. All virtues flourish in the atmosphere of the cross. All vices die beneath the shade of the cross. But get away from your master and you will be undone.